Our text for today is Philippians chapter 2, the first 11 verses. Let's take a look at this together. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count it equality with God, his equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. People who have an influence in our lives have a massive formative effect. Whoever the most influential voices are and people, the voices that you hear in your head as you go about life, they have a tremendous forming power in the way that we go about uh, the day-to-day. And after witnessing the resurrection, Paul encounters the one who's defeated death, and it's, it's an influential game-changer for him. There is nobody more influential than Jesus. There's nobody whose life should inspire him more to sort of emulate and imitate and live an imitation to than Jesus. For Paul, it's, it's just it's absolute. And in this passage, this is one of the most concentrated passages in the New Testament that speaks about um, the divinity of Jesus and the motivation of Jesus and the Christian's imitation of Jesus, all in just the span of, you know, 11 verses. And this, the power of this imitation, when you think about imitation, is this byproduct of having your soul captivated. And this is true in all of our lives in, in simple ways. You see something that is beautiful to you, you want, to, you want that resonating in your own life. You see somebody who's generous and merciful, you say, I want to see more of that in my own character. You see someone with an eye for design, and you, you take in beauty and art, and you want that replicated in your own home. And it plays itself out in your aesthetic choices. You see fashion that, that catches your eye in a certain way, and it's beautiful to you, and it's showing up in your wardrobe. I mean, on and on we can go with the formative... The formative impact, the, just the byproduct that comes when your, your soul is gripped by something. I remember when I was uh, about 10 years old-ish and I discovered, you know, the, the, uh, the art design and the creativity and the imagination of an artist named Bill Watterson. And you guys will know his work if you don't recognize the name. The Calvin and Hobbes guy, the creator of Calvin and Hobbes. And I remember being just so enthralled with this, the, the the humor and the stories, but also the design that all of my sketchbooks started looked like Bill Watterson's work and all of the characters that I created were inspired by his line work and uh, it just had this formative effect. I was like, I really like what this represents and I want to see that represented in my own art. And that's just how influence is. That's how beauty strikes us and captivates the soul. And Paul is struck by the ultimate beauty of Christ, the resurrection and all of its implications. And so he speaks with really, really strong language in this, uh, 
passage that we just read about the ultimate influence and the formative effect. So there are entire books that have been written on these 11 verses, so there's no way I'm going to do it justice. But what I do hope to do is point you to a couple of things that will really be an encouragement to you in your life as we look at this text. So I want us to look at the flow. Uh, The first thing that we notice is there is this empowering grace that comes to those who are united to Christ. And then secondly, I want us to see how we flow out of that empowering grace into the call to share in the passions and the motivations of Christ. And then lastly, I want us to give us a little bit of consideration to the life-altering implications of the divinity and the humanity of Christ. Fully God and fully man. So first, let's start with um, the empowering grace that comes to those who are united to Christ. If you look at the first verse, if you could put it back up there for me. If you look at the first verse, you're going to notice that Paul fires off four questions immediately. If, 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 if. And this is an, this is an intention, intentional literary device here. If there's any encouragement, if there's any comfort, if there's any participation, if there's any affection and sympathy. And he's doing this on purpose. These are rhetorical questions. He's not actually asking. You don't have to go very far to find other places in the New Testament where Paul has explicitly like, expounded upon those four things. So he's not... These are rhetorical questions. He's not wondering. He's announcing. That's the first thing. This is a strong announcement. And the other thing that I want you to notice is that uh, there's actually a strong um, tone that he's taking here. So Greek scholars will tell us that there's different moods in Greek. And one of the moods is like this imperative, strong, emotive mood. That's what this is. It's like the difference between getting a text from somebody and getting that same text in all caps. You read it in two different ways, don't you? You tell a friend you're going to go out for coffee, and then you get to their house, and you text them, I'm here, you coming, question mark. Great. But what if you sent that text, that text in all caps? I'm here, you coming, question mark? This is a totally different vibe. So before we even dial into, and we're never going to get to it today, but the dial into the beauty of all this, the implications of Jesus, Paul at the beginning is not wondering anything. He's announcing strongly, and there's just a strong uh, intensity about his uh, language. And he's doing this all on purpose because there's this huge emotional force about just how good this resurrected Jesus is and just how deep the implications of this God who became man defeating death actually are. And uh, so there's this tone of certainty that he strikes. And, and uh, we, we find it right here. It's like he's saying, if water is wet and the sun is hot and stone is hard and the star, stars shine bright, church, we better be in unity about this. And his whole goal is that there is this unity in ministry. That's where this is headed. He wants that church to be united in ministry. By extension, he wants our church, this church, to be united in ministry. So you see that language there. Let us be of the same love, of one accord, of one mind. That's what he wants. Look at verse 1 again, just real quick. You'll see that he says, if, is there, if there's any encouragement, if there's any comfort, I just want to draw your attention to the word comfort. Uh, is there any comfort in Christ? When we see the word comfort, we think of it like giving hugs and saying, it's going to be okay, and consoling somebody. And that is all true. It does mean that. Uh, It also means more. So I think this will be helpful for you. The comfort of Christ. Uh, That word in the Greek is the same word for Holy Spirit. Perikaleo. 
The Holy Spirit is the comforter, the, parac- the paraclete. Parakaleo is comfort. So when, when Paul says, and he, again, he's not asking. If there's any comfort in Christ, the, the parakaleo is not just, the job of the Holy Spirit is not just giving divine hugs. It's going to be okay. He does do that. And if you ever flop on the floor in the fetal position or cried on your couch, you know, or starfished onto the bed, we do need God to c- console us and, and remind us that he is with us. I'm not minimizing that. But what it means also, and what it means here, is the one who brings strength for bravery to do something. Empowering you with strength, empowering you with bravery to do something. What is that something? What do we need strength and bravery for? Well, you, the, the flow of the text shows us it's this outward-facing, loving, emptying, sacrificial life. It's the life of a minister. Not a consumer. Like it's a total shift in orientation. But we need strength to do that. We need bravery to do that. Because our proclivity is, is not going to live a life curved outwards. The natural inclination of your sin and mine is to continually play the safe game. And to stay curved inwards. So what we actually need is this strength, this bravery. bravery. We need uh, the parakaleo of the Spirit, and that's, praise God, what Jesus provides. Because it's impossible to be a minister of comfort if we're obsessed with our own. And so it moves on to verse 3 and depicts the Christian life as, you know, not living from conceit, this overemphasized self-importance, but putting the interests of others above ourselves. And this sort of language seems normal in the 21st century. It kind of Perhaps you're here and you're exploring Christian faith and you think, I don't even know that you need to be a Christian to do any of this stuff. Here's what I would uh, uh, say in regards to that. We here in the West, as moderns, have benefited from the way that Jesus Christ changed the entire world. Because if you say, well, it doesn't seem that you need to be a Christian to sort of walk out these sort of ethics, I agree with you, that is true today. But in the Greco-Roman world, at the time when uh, Jesus was calling his followers to this kind of a life, the, Gre- the ancient Greco-Romans were not considering the life of self-sacrifice a virtue. They considered it, at that point in history, a sign of tremendous weakness. And for you to exert your strength for your own benefit, and to be a person of power, regardless of those around you, that was considered a virtue. So here we are in the 21st century. The world has been turned on its head. The ethics have been turned on their heads. The cross has changed the West. And this life of sacrifice and caring for the little guy and saying, standing up and speaking, you know, truth to power for those who are being oppressed. This is a very modern ways of thinking. That is all because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus was standing up for the poor, the outcast, and the refugee before it was cool, if I could use that language. He was doing it when nobody was doing it, when they were saying that's, that's one way to get absorbed uh, and stepped on by the surrounding culture. We see the empowering grace that comes to those who are united to Christ. Paul's blown away by Jesus. He calls him to that. Let's move on to the second thing. The call to sort of share in the motivations and the passions of Jesus. In verse 5, we have this really familiar statement. If you've been in church for a while, this is familiar. For some of you, this may be new. So I'll just explain it real brief. But there's that phrase there in verse 5 that says, 
let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And, um, or having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Having the mind of Christ, that phrase, what in the world does that even mean? It has nothing to do with intellect, and it has everything to do with appetite. Having the mind of Christ is to have the attitudes and the motivations and the inclinations. It is, the idea is that you are essentially driven by the passion of Christ. And uh, the things that he loved and was passionate about, these become formative things in our life where we, you know, like being taken in and captivated by something beautiful and saying, I want more of that in me. This is what it is. And so Paul is appealing to this and he's saying, we want to have, we want to have this. It's not a conversation uh, around intellect. I remember being really confused as a little kid about the mind of Christ because I had had some unhelpful ways that it was described to me like it was about intellect and, uh, and ability. Come on, you can do that. You've got the mind of Christ. I don't know. This math seems pretty hard. You've got the mind. It's about this appetites and passions and coming in congruence with loving the things that Jesus loved. And so, we very much want to, as a church, live into this. And so that's why we're always looking for ways where we can love what Jesus loved. It's not like, well, this is a, this is a thing we're supposed to do to sort of virtue signal that we're a church that cares about the city. Like, this is, this is Jesus. This is what he did. And we very, much, we very much care and want to more and more live into this kind of care. And this is what the apostles sort of calling them into. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. You know, we're looking forward to returning downtown. We're so thankful for this building. We're so thankful that we can gather right now here. But we really want to be back in the city because we want to be close to the need and we want to be accessible and we want people to be able to jump on a bus and be able to get to us. And, we, and this is very much a, a, a part of who we want to be as a church. And you know, none of us as Christians live into this automatically. None of us live into this loving, sacrificial, you know, perspective automatically. Um, you know, this is an instruction to be awed and amazed by Jesus and sort of enter in and imitate him. You know, this week, Isaiah, our oldest son, who is an animator at Sheridan, uh, student, uh, taking the animation there, he sent us what's called a rig. He said, hey, check out this rig. And a rig means that another artist created a character, and then they, they rigged the character by putting connection points at every conceivable joint where you could animate the movement of the character. It's a rig. So Isaiah was given the character, but then what Isaiah did was he brought the character to life, and he animated it, and he brought it to life, and he made it move. And what, what Paul is getting out of this text is he's saying, you know, we're united to Jesus and full of the Spirit. We're united to the same rig. And so we can look and not be crushed by the beautiful example of Christ's love and mercy and justice, but desire for that to, to, to reform the way that we live so that we are essentially animate, our lives are being animated on his rig. And we do this imperfectly because we're all sinners. But we also do it increasingly because united to Christ, we sinners are called righteous, declared righteous, and are, are slowly being uh, brought into the imitation of of uh, the one who saved us in grace. And this leads us to the final thing, which is this, the life-altering implications of uh, the divinity and the humanity of Christ. And that's actually verses uh, 6 through 11, which in the book of Philippians is right in the, the letter to the Philippians, it's right in the middle. And a lot of theologians refer to this as the Christ hymn. 
Because everything else in the letter is revolving around those verses. The life of the Christian is revolving around those verses. Our worship is revolving around those verses. They call it the Christ hymn. And uh, it's very old. It's, uh, Greek scholars will say those verses are older than the rest of this letter. We don't know whether Paul wrote them or somebody else wrote them. Uh, but whether Paul wrote them or he's borrowing them, it doesn't matter. The point is... But for a very, very long time, people were worshiping this man, Jesus, as God, and that both were true. And that's significant because maybe you have heard somebody say to you, uh, you know, hey, listen, I appreciate your Christian faith and, you know, loving the little guy is great. And I think there's a lot of good Christian values that we can grab from. But really, we can grab from the positive values of all religions, really. And we don't need to get hung up on Jesus being God or Jesus being the Son of God or the resurrection or Jesus raising from the grave. In fact, it's possible that Jesus was just an ancient hipster that loved people. And we can all get on board with that. And it was actually over time, over long periods of time, that the legend of Jesus grew into him being divine. And then they started worshiping him as God later, but they didn't really worship him as God immediately. And my encouragement to you is that that is uh, completely false. And what these verses, this Christ hymn, or it was either a hymn or it was a creed, or it was these verses, what they teach us is this letter was written around 25 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. And that creed was around way long even before this letter. And what history teaches us is that Jews and Greeks and Romans... We're worshiping Jesus as God overnight. And so from a historical point of view, that doesn't make any sense. Because people don't leave their worldview overnight. You don't just believe fables overnight. From a sociological point of view, it doesn't make any sense that Greeks and Romans and Jews would leave their philosophies, leave their ideas of worshiping God, and just worship Jesus overnight, if he was just a nice guy, and later it morphed into this idea. What these, what these verses give us is that right from the beginning, he was worshipped as God. That's all I'm going to say about that. A lot more could be said. Well, are the scriptures reliable? Should we believe them? I'm not going to get into any more of that this morning. But if you are curious about that, if that's a hang-up for you, and you're like, you know, I'm interested in Christian faith, but I'm not sure I can believe these things for these reasons, then reach out to me. Let's have a coffee, and I'll dial into all that stuff in detail as to why we can believe uh, in, in the uh, authority of the Scripture as being faithful historical record of the resurrection of Jesus. We'll talk about that more. If that's of interest to you, you can reach out. But if you look at verses 6 and 8, it says that he was in the form of God, and then he came in the form of man. And it's not, it's not saying that Jesus started out in this mysterious shape of God, and then he took a familiar shape called man. It's not about the externals. He looked like a human. Form in the Greek is morphe. And, and uh, in English, whenever morphe shows up, it usually ends up in words like metamorphosis, meaning like from one form to another, uh, which is true. But the deeper uh, meaning of morphe, and in this context here, the form, is it means the inner characteristics. What it's saying is Jesus is like the perfect interpretation of God. If you're looking at Jesus, you are perfectly looking at the innermost characteristics and loves of God. And so it says that Jesus went from the, from the form of God, and then he, he took on the form of man. So when we look at Jesus, we're looking at the perfect 
characteristics of God. And we're also looking at the perfectly walked out characteristics of beautiful humanity. The morphe of God, the morphe of humanity. When we look at the cross, we know who God is and what he is like and how he feels about humanity. When we look at the life of Jesus, we discover how do we walk out in, in uh, the newness of intended God's intentions for humanity. We see all of these things to be true. And the concept of God, of course, is totally un- unfathomable. But when we look at Jesus, we're given this concrete image of his nature. And so uh, in this, we find that uh, Jesus did not, you know, uh, give up his deity. He maintained his deity. He maintained the fact that he was God. And he took on humanity. He added something. He remained deity and he took on humanity. There's a significance to all this. You might say, well, this is nice and theological, but I don't know how it could sort of matter. Here's why it matters. Because our God is unlike all the other gods. Here's why it matters. He didn't lay down his deity, but he did lay down the power and the prerogative and the privilege of his deity. He laid that down. And then he took on humanity. And the significance of this is that we have a God who's transcendent and eminent. He's above all things as creator, but he's like close to you and I as a loving father. And in the other world faiths, God is not this loving, eminent, caring being. He's transcendent and distant. There's a man named, uh, his name was Nabil Qureshi, and he was a devout Muslim, and he was uh, deeply seeking to be faithful to Islam, and he wrote a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, and in it, he very thoughtfully goes through the difference between what the scriptures have to say about God as Father and what the Quran has to say about Allah as Creator. And the difference being that of the 99 names for Allah in the Quran, none of those 99 names have anything to do with closeness or intimacy or love. The deepest, most obvious Arabic words for love are not found in the 99 names of Allah. And so as Qureshi is writing this, what he's saying is he discovered that this God of Christianity is a God who wants this closeness. He's not a creator who wants obedient and loyal subjects, though, of course, we desire to live in obedience to our God because he loves us, but it's because we have a king who we love. God doesn't want loyal and obedient subjects. He wants to be a father to children. And so the significance of Jesus being God who then takes on the humanity, the form, and comes to, to, to love us is, is beautiful and powerful because it's an image of laying his life down, which of course informs us in laying our lives down. To borrow from Charles Spurgeon, he says it this way, the lower he stoops to save us, the higher we ought to lift him in our adoring reverence. Blessed be his name. He stoops and stoops and stoops and when he reaches our level, he becomes a man and still he stoops and stoops and stoops lower and deeper yet. And so we give him this glorious praise. Paul looks at the laying down of self in order to love. And then he says, let this mind, let this attitude, let these passions reframe us. Let these reanimate us. Because in the same way that Jesus didn't lose a sense of himself, he remained God, he remained deity when he became a man. Jesus didn't lose any sense of himself. Jesus was not diminished when he emptied emptied himself. We don't lose any part of ourselves. We are not diminished as we give of ourselves. This is uh, 
a bit on a bit of a head-on collision with our ideas around self-care. Because there's a healthy way to approach self-care, and it's that, of course, you need time to replenish yourself for the purpose of loving, loving others. And then there's ideas about self-care that are not good, which is that we essentially continually curve in on ourselves, and anytime we don't want to be inconvenienced, we can play the self-care card, because after all, who shouldn't, you know, love themselves with self-care, right? What this helps us do, my friends, as Christians today, is say, you know what, I am able to live a life of emptying myself Without, di- without diminishing myself. And I, in the same way that uh, Christ didn't lose his sense of identity, neither do I, in all of my serving and caring and loving, uh, lose my sense of identity as a, ch- as, a, as a child of God. And so when we come to uh, verses 8 and 9, it says that he humbled himself in death on a cross, right? that he has provided everything that God has required. And then... In the end, we see that this doesn't just end in death and humiliation. What's got the apostle so jazzed up is this actually ends in life and exaltation. And he sees a pattern. And he's jazzed about it because he's writing this from prison. (laughs) Right? He doesn't know if he's going to live or die. He doesn't know if he's going to see the church. He might die there. And so here he is writing from prison. And he's pretty jazzed as he's writing this because he realizes the pattern of Christ's life is also the pattern of his. This thing is not ending in darkness and death and humiliation. This thing is ending in life and exaltation. Pattern of Christ's life, pattern of the apostles' life, pattern of the early church, church's life, pattern of our life. And so because that is true and because he sees it and he's so excited about it, it, invigor- it invigorates him uh, just as it can invigorate us. And so we're called to proclaim this good news, right? This life is not all that there is. There is this great God of love who forgives us of our sin, but not only that, is restoring and renewing all things. And so in the meantime, we can be these active ministers. You know, we will not share the gospel. We'll talk about it, but we won't share it if we're constantly... (laughs) Committed to insulating ourselves from potential discomfort. If the number one thing in our life is avoiding discomfort, we will not preach Jesus. But, if in Jesus there is comfort, P.S. there is, if there is this empowering strength in bravery, then we will share this gospel because we won't be obsessing about avoiding discomfort. We will find rest in God and strength in God and strength in His comfort and we will go out and strengthen bravery. We will be ministers of the gospel. We will actually minister His comfort. And in closing, Paul says in verses uh, 9 and 10 that Jesus has been given the name that's above every name, that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if Jesus isn't Lord, something will be. If who Jesus was and is isn't the most formative influence in our life, I mean, something will be, for sure. And whether we worship or we don't worship, this is not the option. Uh, Only what we worship is the option. As Jared Wilson said in the garden, the worship switch was flipped on in our hearts, and it's been on ever since. And so the good news of the gospel is that we can live into the realities of this new creation. His form becomes our form. Jesus 
and who was in the form of God, took on the form of true humanity, beautiful humanity. And the form of Christ's humanity becomes increasingly the form of our humanity. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort of his love, if there's any participation in the Spirit, may we be of the same mind and the same love and be full, in full accord with one mind, church. May we do these things, may we live this way, not to gain the acceptance of God, we already have it, but from it, from his grace. May we find rest and strength and comfort in Christ, may we go out from that comfort in love and in bravery as ministers of the gospel of Jesus. Let's pray.